Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Over the last week, the White House has stepped up its deployment of both hard and soft power to try to influence the course of conflict in the Middle East. Secretary of State Antony Blinken went to Israel this week, his fifth visit to the region since the October 7 attacks, to further negotiations to release Israeli hostages and pause regional fighting. The diplomacy comes amid U.S. attacks on a range of Iran-backed groups in the region as a reprisal for the deaths of three U.S. service members in Jordan last month. One question that everyone's wondering is whether any of these measures will calm what has so far been a growing regional conflict. And if you add in the fact that the White House also has to think about a war in Europe and other concerns in Asia, does it have the capacity to handle military and intelligence threats in so many parts of the world simultaneously? Well, my guest actually has many of the answers, and he is James Stavridis, a retired four-star U.S. Navy admiral. He's also the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. It's easily the best job title ever. He has a new book out. It's called 2054, and it's a novel co-written with Elliot Ackerman. As always, if you like this podcast, rate us, share it with a friend, or try us on video on foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to ask questions, as you know. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Okay, let's dive in. Admiral, welcome back to FP Live. Wonderful to be back with you, Ravi. So I thought we should start with the Middle East. Um, and you've been arguing since before America suffered casualties in the Middle East last month that Washington should send Tehran a message, maybe a tougher message than it has been. And then three U.S. service people died. And then the U.S. did indeed strike some Iran-backed targets in the region. Do you think that America has been able to send the message it needed to send? I think we have begun to send the appropriate message. And by the way, it's not just the three servicemen and women ashore who were killed. We lost two Navy SEALs the week before that in this mission, tragically, as they were attempting to board an Iranian-backed ship carrying armaments uh, to the Houthis. So the U.S. casualty count is rising, and I think it is the appropriate time to begin striking with more volume and more precision. And what I mean by that is, over the last week, we've seen about 150 targets serviced, as we say in the business, about 100 up north in Iraq and Syria, about 50 Red Sea area, that's a volume increase and a promise to go on. And then secondarily, the precision piece of this is about striking not just the proxy groups, 
but also the Iranian Revolutionary Guard trainers who are embedded with them, who are organizing, training, equipping, conducting, probably directing many of these operations. So I think the administration has moved up the ladder of vertical escalation. Let's hope Tehran is listening. If not, Ravi, we've got to talk about what's the next level of strikes. So I want to come to that in a moment, um, especially all of the military options on the table. But first, a strategic question. So all of these Iran-backed groups, whether it's the Houthis, whether it's Hezbollah or the Islamic resistance in Iraq, they like to call themselves the axis of resistance. And part of the problem for America is that every attack on them serves to unite them further. And I'm not saying this is right, but it strengthens their narrative of the United States as a colonizing force in the region. And in a sense, it makes the axis a self-fulfilling prophecy. How do you deal with that? I think you begin by recognizing um, you are quite correct. These are disparate groups which have different histories and cultures, different languages in some cases. But what do they all have in common? Houthis, Hamas, Hezbollah, the various radical groups in Syria and Iraq. What they have in common is one word, Iran. And I think you begin by parsing this as an overall Iranian effort, quite distinct, to try and push as hard as they can throughout, frankly, the entire very broad Middle East. And I'd invite viewers and listeners mentally or physically get out a map of the ancient Persian empire. It stretched from India to the shores of the Mediterranean. It's the largest empire in human history on a per capita basis of humans on the population 2,500 years ago. As we used to say in the Soviet Union, it is no coincidence, comrade, when you put that map on overlay, you see everywhere the Iranians read the Persians are continuing to push and they seek that for geopolitical influence, economic influence, religious forward push of the Shia side of Islam. And all of that gets back to Tehran. So Yes, we ought to be concerned that these individual pieces and parts of this Iranian effort will be somewhat strengthened as they get to fight the great Satan. The way to undermine all of that is to go back and put the pressure on Tehran. Tehran owns and operates these proxies. We ought to go to Iran if we're going to solve each of these individual pieces and parts. And the history you describe is, I think, exactly right, but especially under this latest iteration of Iran over the last 45 years, the Islamic Republic, because they, of course, um, A, hearken back to that history the most, but B, they see the United States as their, their mortal enemy, thus combining all of these groups together into this axis. But in terms of U.S. policy, how effective is it to attack these disparate groups, as you point out, even to attack some Iranian facilities uh, or IRGC infrastructure. How does that end up actually deterring Iran? What is your sense of how they respond to these attacks and how they might in the next few weeks? Well, I'm old enough, unlike most of the people on this show, 
I'm old enough to remember the 1980s when we saw the relatively young Iranian revolutionary cadre decide it was going to close down the Strait of Hormuz. This is in the late 1980s. They put mines in the water. They attempted to board commercial shipping. They looked a lot like the Houthis of today, except they actually put mines into the water. The United States, in response to that, conducted something called Operation Praying Mantis. You can Google that if you would like to. And we sank about a fourth of their fleet there and destroyed a great number of their naval capabilities, their offshore platforms over the course of 24 to 48 hours. I think it's instructive to look at the response after that. That was all stop. We did not see Iran continue to push forward. So I think history would tell us, hopefully, that a good solid punch against Iran, in this case, through their proxies, at least thus far, may have a salutary effect. We don't know the answer to that. And knowing what is in the minds of any opponent as you try and create deterrence is quite difficult. I will conclude on a factual point, which is every time we destroy a missile site, every time we destroy a radar, every time we destroy an intelligence facility, a command and control norm, every time we kill an Iranian guard trainer, we are, whether we achieve the deterrence we want or not, remains to be seen. We are factually degrading the capability of these groups. And could they be resupplied? Yes. However, could we interdict their resupply from Iran? So there are moves on this chessboard that are tactical, that have real effect. Operational interdiction would have an additional effect. And strategically, we don't know yet whether this level of strikes will convince Tehran to cease and desist. By the way, I'll conclude here. I have seen some intelligence through open source means describing Iran trying to de-escalate this situation. And if I were in Tehran, I would want to de-escalate the situation because otherwise they will end up ultimately with praying mantis too, and it would be a very, I think, striking blow if necessary. Let's hope we don't get there. From a military perspective, does the United States have enough assets positioned in the region? Absolutely. Iran is not China. It's not Russia. Their fleet is reasonable for a mid-sized power. The United States could converge three aircraft carriers there within two weeks. Uh, we already have, as you well know, Ravi, very capable Air Force assets, notably in Doha, just across the Arabian Gulf. That's where our Air Force is located. So you've got two big axes of military capability. And by the way, I would add in, if we get to that point, our offensive cyber capabilities are quite good. We don't like to advertise those or to use them until it becomes absolutely necessary. All of that could be put at play. And I think there is little doubt of the outcome should the United States be goaded into attacking Iran itself. At the heart of, I guess, this latest round of violence, of course, is October 7th. 
And this brings me to a question that one of our subscribers has sent in, Matt Vitalich. And he says, the White House keeps repeating how the Houthi actions have nothing to do with the Gaza war. And yet these attacks did not begin until Israel's initiation of strikes in Gaza. And there's evidence as well that when there is a ceasefire or a pause, the Houthi attacks stop. So the question is, how do we expect to see our way out of this conflict if the White House isn't admitting that connection between the attacks and October 7? Well, I would invite the press to ask those questions of the administration. I think they are very good ones. I'm not going to uh, defend or criticize the administration per se. However, in my view, yes, these are interconnected. Uh, and by the way, the Houthis popped up on the radar doing things very, very similar four or five years ago and were pushed back upon pretty sharply. So again, deterrence may ultimately succeed here. But I think putting those two things side by side makes some sense. So the U.S., in my view, this is partly why Secretary Blinken is on his fifth shuttle trip to the region right now, to try and find some way of bringing a ceasefire, at least a month or two ceasefire, to the region. And I have often said, if he's able to do that, and by the way, it's not just Tony Blinken, who's sort of the public face. I think many on this podcast would know quite well um, the hand in the back channel is Ambassador Bill Burns, uh, director of the CIA, former ambassador to Jordan, speaks lovely Arabic, former ambassador to Russia, by the way, former deputy at, at state. You get the idea. In fact, the title of his memoir, which I highly recommend, is The Back Channel. So he is in the back channel working this hard. Uh, Tony Blinken is on the front lines. They're a good one-two punch. I give them a 60% chance, Ravi, of landing at least a month or two ceasefire, a significant further round of hostage exchange for prisoners held by the Israelis. I think if that occurs, here we get back to your fundamental question, if that occurs, I could see the Houthis saying, we've had real impact. It's a ceasefire. We're going to stop our attacks as long as Israel is in the mode of a ceasefire. That would be progress in this scenario. I think it's possible. And I think the administration is quite well aware of that, whether they choose to articulate it publicly or not. A question that's often come up about the United States' role in the Middle East, and especially with Israel, is how much leverage it has. It's often said that Joe Biden is the most popular man in Israel right now. American support for Israel has been instrumental, not just in this conflict, but over years now. What is your sense of how much leverage America does have on Israeli policy, on Israel's ability or willingness to negotiate or consider Arab-Israeli reconciliation? I think we have significant but not determinative influence. Partly, of course, most pragmatically, it stems from arms transfers and funding. In a normal year, absent what's happened on October 7th, we provide about $5 billion to the Israelis. We provide a roughly equal amount to the Egyptians as well, somewhere between three and $5 billion. We also have deep military-to-military -military relationships in Israel. We have deep intelligence connectivity. 
And most recently, we have been instrumental, both the Trump and the Biden administration, in helping create real rapprochement between particularly the Gulf Arabs and Israel, having decades ago convinced the Jordanians and Egyptians to have diplomatic relations. We've seen success and ongoing efforts to conclude similar things with the rest of the Arab world. All of that represents real influence in the sense that you can threaten to withdraw any of it. You don't like to do that. You hope you can convince, but in the back of the mind on both sides, there's certainly a knowledge of how important the United States is to Israel. And oh, by the way, Israel is very important to the U.S. coming back the other way. They are a, uh, have been a, a staunch and reliable partner in the Middle East. By the way, you probably know this, Ravi. People are often surprised to learn that we do not have a formal defense treaty with Israel. Technically, they are not an ally in the sense that we have treaty binding agreements between us, as we do with 30 members of NATO, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Thailand, the Philippines, South Korea. Those are treaty allies. Israel is a is in every sense, I would say, an ally, but not in a treaty sense, worth knowing that. So this is a long answer to the question. I think we have a lot of influence, but it is significant, but not determinative. We can't simply say to the Israelis, stop the fight in Gaza, conduct a ceasefire, pull your troops back from location X. That won't work for reasons that I think we can all appreciate about how Israelis and Jews feel about independence and the need to defend themselves, having been so cruelly depleted during the Holocaust itself. As we're seeing with Ukraine, and we'll come to that, but domestic moods can change. And so the United States, there's pressure from the left and from other areas on Joe Biden to adjust uh, his Middle East policy, especially among certain demographics. You can think about Arab Americans, for example, who yeah. are quite upset by the images they're seeing out of Gaza. Sure. What is your sense of the domestic pressure that the White House might be facing and how might that impact some of their thinking, um, especially as Tony Blinken is in the Middle East right now? The administration, I think, has done a good job of generally managing on the Jewish American side of this question. Quite obviously, many Jewish Americans are very staunch supporters of Israel. I think the administration has done a reasonably good job of managing with the broad center of American politics here uh, because the ongoing polls suggest Israel continues to enjoy a great deal of support as one of the few true democracies in the region, uh, a nation who, as we just discussed, we have very deep ties that bind us, military, intelligence, trade, economics, culture, history, United States, first nation to recognize the state of Israel. Where the administration has work to do quite clearly, and you put your finger on it, Ravi, is in the Arab American, Palestinian American, and the extreme progressive left, where there has been for decades, frankly, a level of antipathy directed toward Israel. 
for the reasons that historically we perhaps do not have time to unpack each year. I think there the administration has work to do. And frankly, when you get into the domestic politics of this, you know, I have one word for you, Michigan. Here you have a very large Arab American, Palestinian American population, a swing state, tiny margins. I think the administration has some work to do there. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations on video, live, on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including the magazine. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE, one word, for a discount. So Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, made some waves last week with an article that proposed um, what he was calling a new Biden doctrine. And for our viewers who haven't seen it, um, it basically had three strands, uh, a stronger stance on Iran, what Friedman called an unprecedented U.S. diplomatic initiative to promote a Palestinian state, and then finally, a vastly expanded U.S. security alliance with Saudi Arabia, which I'm sure is coming up in talks this week. What is your sense of all of these kind of proposals? And do you get the sense that this is being seriously considered by the White House? Well, uh, first of all, let's stipulate that Bidenomics as a term has not done particularly well. And I think, likewise, a Biden doctrine is probably not a good look for the administration. I've read Tom's piece. I think there is no deeper observer of the Middle East than Tom Friedman, who has been embedded in the region for decades, has extraordinary reporters pipe into many of the leading figures. Um, having read the article, I think he's on roughly the right path. Clearly, some form of a Palestinian state is going to have to be created. What it looks like, we don't know yet. It'll have to be sold to a number of different constituencies. It'll have to be funded, importantly. The good news there is that there's money from the Gulf Arabs, the United States, European Union. I think funding-wise, this is something that could be supported. But where it's going to be, where does the governance come from, who handles the security, all of that is kind of under construction with a sign in front of it. But I think Tom is right to brute that as a critical component. In terms of the third thing in his piece, a U.S.-Saudi military relationship, I think yes to that, particularly assuming it is part of a package, and I think it would be, that would include recognition of Israel by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and vice versa. I think that, frankly, Ravi, we haven't really touched on this, but that was part of the spark that blew all this up. October 7th didn't just emerge from a vacuum. I think a big part of it was Hamas believing that their seat at the table was rapidly falling off the edge and therefore, they needed to do something dramatic to get the Palestinian cause back into voice. So that third element of this, of bringing Israel and the Gulf Arabs together, and of course, Israel is already recognized by UAE, uh, Bahrain, all part of the Abraham Accords. This would consummate the full vision of the Abraham Accords 
I think that is also smart. And then the first part of U.S. engagement, yeah, as much as many Americans are deeply frustrated by the Middle East, you know, it's Hamas and Hezbollah and Shias and Sunnis and terrorists, and it just all looks like one massive, confusing, difficult mess. Why can't we just leave? I get that sentiment, but it's not smart. If we did, we'll leave a vacuum. Iran will sweep into it. We will rue that strategic decision. So bottom line, I think Tom's ideas are about right. And the two that are kind of bell ringers are, yes, two-state solution, Palestinian state. And the other is fully consummate the Abraham Accords, bring the Saudis and the Israelis together. Way to do that, U.S.-Saudi strengthened relationships in the military. But, but but on that point exactly, and this kind of brings us back to Iran, as I think all things seem to do in the Middle East, um, <laughs> Iran doesn't want this to happen. Yeah, indeed they don't. And it frustrates them enormously. What Iran wants to happen is for the United States to leave the region altogether. And frankly, that's why these proxy groups continue to poke and prod push wherever they can at the United States. Uh, note, by the way, that the attacks on Israel from Hezbollah or the Houthis haven't really materialized. Hamas kind of gave it their best shot, but the attacks are really being directed against the United States and the Iranian strategy, and it's not, it's not a stupid strategy, is to frustrate the United States into simply saying, we don't wanna be here. We need to get out of here. I don't think it'll succeed, but in order to not allow Iran to have its sway in this region, we're gonna to have to remain and be part of the solution set here. Does it strike you that America has an Iran plan? No, I think we do not have an Iran plan, um, nor by the way, do we have a China plan, nor do we have a Russia plan. I spent a lifetime building plans in the military. I can assure you the Pentagon has plans for all of those areas. That's what militaries do. They generate military plans, campaign plans, operational plans. What we don't have, and we're not particularly good at as a nation, is creating longer-term strategic plans. We desperately need to do that I would argue top of the list is actually China. We need to have a coherent, long-term strategic plan to manage the relationship between the U.S. and China. Otherwise, we are going to end up um, in real conflict with China. We can avoid that, I think, with a plan, a plan that has military, sure, but more importantly, diplomatic, economic, cultural technological elements to all of it. Similarly, your point, Ravi, it's an excellent one. Iran is the most dominant actor in the Middle East. It's got a huge population, highly educated. And we tend to look at Iran as this kind of annoying middle-sized power in, in a region that would just as soon depart. That's not how they see themselves. The Iranians absolutely see themselves as the inheritors of the Persian Empire. Job one in creating a strategy for Iran would be to recognize the Iranian self-view. Then you can begin to reverse engineer it and find the levers 
that could avoid conflict. So yes, we need a coherent plan with Iran that goes beyond the kind of episodic interactions that we tend to have with them. Let's turn to another war. You've written recently that U.S. resources are not infinite. And so when it comes to Russia's war in Ukraine, I guess we can discuss the funding in a second, but just at the intelligence level, how is the conflict in the Middle East impacting American intelligence and operations in Europe? It is hurting the Ukrainian cause because unlike Tom Clancy novels where U.S. intelligence is this unbelievable, unblinking eye, network satellites everywhere, constantly scanning the globe, listening to every cell phone conversation. The reality is, as you point out, I have said often, intelligence resources are finite. And when you direct that unblinking eye at Iran and the Middle East, for example, you absolutely are gonna have fewer drones, fewer satellite passages, less bandwidth devoted to cyber, less listening capacity on cell networks. It's the reality of the business. Some of that may change, by the way, with artificial intelligence in a decade or so. But for the moment, it's a zero-sum game so that resources devoted to supporting Ukraine, for example, or the South China Sea, or Venezuela as it nuzzles up to Guyana and thinks about taking a chunk of that nation. Those intel resources are finite. So that's one element of this. And then a second one, different kind of resource, of course, it's the hardware. It's the ammunition, the stockpiles. We are now hitting the point because we have invested so much into the Ukrainian conflict. Now Israel pops up. We are looking in very tough decision ways at who gets the next round of 155 ammunition of, of artillery shells, for example. And by the way, on the other side of that battle line, uh, Vladimir Putin has turned to North Korea and Kim Jong-un, and we're seeing Korean missiles and Korean 155 equivalent hardware showing up on that battlefield. So yes, I worry about Ukraine because not only are resources finite, but to conclude, our attention span is finite. And when we are focused deeply on the Middle East, for example, or the border, another national security concern, there is less time for the national security team to dive in and really focus on Ukraine and what we need to be doing to push back on Vladimir Putin there. So we are not omnipotent in any sense. These two wars are not out of a Tom Clancy novel. Resources mm. are finite. Never would I have thought that Tom Clancy could be reassuring, but uh, I guess that was. <laughs> you mentioned the border, and that sadly is tied to Ukraine at this point in Congress. What is your sense of where that's headed, um, if you can? But also, how badly does Ukraine need American aid this year? I'll take the second part first. They badly need American aid. Some good news, the Europeans, as you're aware, Ravi, just last week approved roughly $60 billion in assistance from the European Union to Ukraine. That is coincidentally the exact amount of Ukrainian aid that is parked in this omnibus international security bill that includes 
money for Ukraine, money for Israel, money for Taiwan, money for the border, few other things. I think that uh, Ukraine, because the Europeans are going to deliver, will be able to continue on, but it's still certainly going to take away any chance the Ukrainians have of attacking Crimea or really taking back some portion of the Donbass region, the land bridge between Crimea and Russia. That's gone, absent U.S. aid coming through. So now let's go to the funding piece. As I mentioned, I thought a rather clever maneuver was to put all of that funding in a big package because not everyone wanted everything, but everyone wanted something that was in that package. Now, unfortunately, due to the vagaries of the U.S. election year, we're seeing that being pulled apart. Let's be candid here. The Republicans are now walking away from the border portion of this because, at least according to Donald Trump, his own words, he wants to run on that issue in the fall rather than try and solve the problem now. That's a pretty cynical calculus. I'll leave the criticism of that to domestic political observers. But in my wheelhouse, the international world sends a terrible signal globally, probably significantly reduces the chances of Ukraine aid coming through as a standalone. Oh, by the way, means the border will get worse and means we won't have even the aid to Israel because other factions will, having disagreed with the border decision, may spike the Israeli aid. It's the worst example I can think of, of the U.S. Congress being presented an opportunity to do the right thing in four different venues, the border, Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, simply pulling it all apart for domestic political reasons. That's a shame. One thing that I think all of us have been thinking about vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine now almost at two years of the war is if you look back, how stunning it is at how united they've been, how brave they've been. Uh, man, woman, and child, to a point, all Ukrainians have wanted to fight. They've wanted to unite. But we're seeing now the beginnings uh, and the emergence of problems. President Zelensky um, has looked to sideline a potential political rival, one of his top generals. He's hinting at a major shakeup of his government. What is your sense of how these changes um, might impact the war this year, but also the broader sense of unity that in many senses has kept Ukraine going for so long? Let's begin with why President Zelensky is thinking quite seriously, and I think he will kind of conduct a reset. And the answer is because things are not going particularly well. The failure of the spring, summer, fall offensive of 23, I think, is front and center for him. So quite logically, just like Lincoln did in the Civil War, you start to think about changing generals. If what's happening on the battlefield is not what you want or need. Number two, just the temporal quality of this, we're two years into it, and now you really feel, as we were just discussing, the softening of support to Ukraine. I was, again, thrilled European Union came through 60 mm -hmm. billion. I am still hopeful the United States will do the right thing here. 
I think we will, but boy, I, I'm less confident of that certainly than I was six months ago. So if you're a Zelensky in Kyiv, it's kind of a mixed picture. You feel that softening. You know it's an election year in the U.S. You think, how can I reset this narrative to engender more confidence uh, from my backers? And then thirdly, unfortunately, Zelensky looks across the firing line and Putin has had a pretty good six months. He shut down this Prigozhin revolution. He's got his arms industry in a relative sense, humming along, producing weapons. It'll hurt Russia's economy long-term, but he's managed to create a sense of a war footing in the industrial world. And he's managed to come up with enough troops. His population is three times larger than that of Ukraine to keep the front lines fully manned. So again, if you're Zelensky and you look across toward the, the Tower of Mordor, and Sauron up there in the tower, Vladimir Putin in the Lord of the Rings analogy, yeah, you're a little worried. So you're going to kind of think about a reset. Having said all of that, if I were advising President Zelensky, I would tell him, you need to maintain control of a narrative that you started out with, Ravi, a narrative of heroism, of standing and facing the ultimate evil in the form of Vladimir Putin and the, the Russian army, of cohesion among Ukrainians. That's a pretty valuable commodity for you. So I would advise him, go carefully in anything that is going to create divisions in your society. Final thought, he's a human being, and he has been under unimaginable strain and stress. His family's been at risk. His country's been invaded. He's two plus years into this. You know, the insulation is starting to come off his wires. So let's give him a moment and see how he conducts this reset, which I think is needed, but it needs to be done in a way that maintains the center of gravity for Ukraine, which is in fact their unity. Mm, that's great advice. I know a lot of Ukrainian policymakers watch this, so I'm sure they'll follow uh, your words very closely. I want to end with China. A lot of subscribers from around the world have written in um, hoping we would go there. So let's do that. We have fresh diplomatic talks expected this week, I think in the economic arena with Secretary Yellen. There have been a spate of quite heartening talks between top American policymakers and their counterparts. Most recently, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan spent 12 hours with his counterpart in Bangkok. A lot of this bodes well, at the very least, for communications between the two sides and warding off the worst if it gets to that point. What is your sense, though, of what this means for the broader trajectory of U.S.-China relations? There's a school of thought that goes that as China's economy weakens a bit, they're less likely to have designs on Taiwan. But there's another school of thought, which, for example, Hal Brands and Michael Beckley frequently argue out in foreign policy, which is that if you're watching China, you're watching these signs of decline, you have all kinds of red flashing warnings going off that China is now more likely to attack Taiwan, not less. What's your reading of it? And how do you place recent diplomacy in that mix? Yeah, I want to begin by answering that entire question in three words. 
I don't know. Nobody <laughs> does. I think we all ought to be a little less confident, maybe a little less arrogant about our predictive powers. If we have not learned that in the last decade, we have learned nothing. So no one knows. And my good friend and colleague, Hal Brands, I think is a smart, seasoned observer. And there are plenty of other folks who would take that side of the argument. I'm going to take the other side. I'm somewhat optimistic person by nature. Greeks, Greek Americans often are. Don't forget, we were the last country that stopped the Persians, stopped the Persian Empire. So woven into our DNA somewhere is a uh, is a little bit of optimism. And the things we've been talking about today have been quite dire and quite concerning, notably wars in Ukraine and the Middle East. So I'm going to take the upside on U.S.-China relations as follows. Go back two years ago when Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken sat down with their counterparts in Alaska, and it was pistols at 10 paces. I mean, it was wolf warrior diplomacy. By the way, who calls their diplomats wolf warriors? <laughs> well, that would be China. That was two, three years ago now. Most recently, and you didn't mention it, but I thought the meeting, the summit between President Xi and President Biden was quite nice, if I can say so. Look at the photograph. I mean, there was a real human tone to it. These are two senior guys who've both been around the world a lot, and they ended up talking about cars and she's time in San Francisco as a young man. And there were there were some nice grace notes in all And they've of spent that. a lot of time with each other historically as absolutely, well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the end of it, was there some huge deliverable and the tariffs all go away and we have a free trade agreement with China? No, that's not going to happen. Uh, we're going to continue to be competitors. There'll be spikes and tension. But I came away from that summit. And then as you correctly mentioned, a series of exchanges by cabinet level officials, Jake Sullivan, who is a master at sit down, talk, let's, let's work through this. No, I think things are actually going pretty well. And if you want a final point on this, it would be what happened three weeks ago? Taiwan had an election. And William Lai, the, the president-elect, he'll actually be inaugurated a bit later in the spring, was the worst possible candidate from Beijing's perspective. You see him right there. He's the hand-picked successor of Madame Tsai, who we all know quite well, that you know kind of steel rod of Taiwan. William Lai is just like her, and therefore not good news from a Beijing perspective. But the good news from all of our perspective, is that instead of launching 300 cruise missiles, 150 to the north and 150 to the south of the island, and flying 1,000 jets uh, through the, the air defense zone between the island and the mainland, uh, none of that happened. China has sort of sat back. They have done a few little declaratory types of things. I think they're watching for the inauguration itself. They're going to listen very closely to what William Lai says. He will say some things that annoy China. But when I put all that together to get to your specific question, no, I don't see the eminent theory of an invasion of Taiwan. It just seems highly unlikely. 
China's not in a good position economically, I think that restrains them rather than the other way around. And if you're President Xi, you're watching Ukraine and you are saying to yourself three things. Number one, I wonder if my generals are as bad as the Russian generals appear to be. It's a good question. They were all trained together and she has no idea how good or bad his generals or his admirals are. None of them have been in serious combat in their lives. For better or for worse, the U.S. military is a well-blooded armed force. We know what we're doing. China just doesn't know. It's an uncertainty for them. They haven't been in a serious war since the Korean War. Minor dust-up with Vietnam, few skirmishes with India, no wars. That's good for China, but I think in terms of your reliability sense of your military, maybe not so good. Number two, he has no idea whether or not the Taiwanese will really fight like hell the way the Ukrainians are. He's never been to Taiwan. I have. I've been there a lot. I know Madam Tsai. I've met President-elect Lai. I think they'll fight. I think they'll fight hard. And it will be a tough military campaign. And number three, she doesn't know what the economic impact of this would be, how big the sanctions would be, how much it would crater the global economy. So if I put myself in Xi's feet, I look at everything we just talked about. I just don't see him suddenly lunging for the ball and attacking Taiwan. And he's, she is a, he's a patient guy. Don't forget, he started life as a princeling in the Communist Party. His family was disgraced, fell out of favor. He ended up on a collective farm shoveling manure for seven years. Then he started applying for membership in the Communist Party. It took him five years before they let him back in the party. He's a pretty patient guy. I don't think he's going to invade Taiwan. And I think U.S.-China relations will be bumpy. There'll be some hard spots. I think compared to Ukraine or the Middle East, I'll take door number three as a foreign policy challenge, U.S.-China. It's not often I can end this program on an optimistic note, slightly optimistic <laughs> note, so I'm going to take that. Admiral James Tavridis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Robbie. Great questions. Great conversation. And that was James Tavridis. As always, if you want to know who is coming up in future episodes of FP Live, head to foreignpolicy.com. We conduct these interviews live, obviously, and on video, and we often plan them out weeks ahead of time. So next week, for example, we have Geeta Gopinath. She's the first Deputy Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. We're going to talk about the state of the global economy. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live and Video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. 
everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.